Second Chronicles chapter 20 this morning. We're doing a little series on Old Testament examples of prayer. And uh, we're going to do about four of these, and then we're going to be going into the book of Titus this fall. And so we look forward to that. But if you turn over in your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 20, I just want to read our text uh, for us this morning. Second Chronicles chapter 20, uh, beginning in verse 1. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with them some of the Meunites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are the Azazam Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, For your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Verse 13, Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaniah, son of uh, Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. And you will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jurel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites and the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. 
and they rose early in the morning and they went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with his people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. When Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, They found among them in great numbers goods and clothing and precious things, which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. They were three days in taking the spoil. It was so much. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Barakah, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the valley of Barakah to this day. Then they returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem, and Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. They came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord. And the fear of God came on all the kingdoms of the countries when they had heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. This is just an incredible uh, section of Scripture. You see here this man bringing his petition before his God, and it's just miraculous what happens. Just miraculous. Last week, we looked at Abraham, and we talked about the man who bargained with God in Genesis 18. And the theme of last week's message was the knowledge of God's purpose and God's person should move us to pray for a world under judgment. Sometimes I think our theology can get in the way of our prayers. We believe very much in this church and the sovereignty of God because that's what the Bible teaches, that God is all-powerful, that God is sovereign, that our salvation is by his hand and his hand alone. There are others who would believe, and they come from a theological position, that would say, no, 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 we have a human will, we have a free will. And their relationship to God and the nature of the future and everything that that involves is really up to them. It's not up to God. 
Some in the Armenian camp even take that to a further extent. And we call that open theism. Open theism, also called the openness or open view. It's a theological position dealing with human free will and its relationship to God. And it basically teaches that God has granted to humanity a free will and that in order for the free will to be truly free, the future free will choices of individuals cannot be known ahead of time by God or they wouldn't be free. They hold that if God knows what we are going to choose, then how can we truly be free when it is time to make those choices? Since a counter choice cannot be made by us because it is already known what we are going to do. In other words, simply put, we would not actually be able to make a contrary choice to what God knows. We will choose thus implying our will is not free at all. See, in open theism, the future is either knowable or not knowable. For the open theists who hold that the future is knowable by God, they maintain that God voluntarily limits his knowledge of free will choices so that they can truly remain free. Other open theists maintain that the future being non-existent is not knowable. It doesn't exist, even by God. One of those in the open theism camp, Gregory Boyd, wrote this. Much of it, speaking of the future, open theists will concede. It's settled ahead of time, either by God's predestined will or by existing earthly causes. But it is not exhaustively settled ahead of time. To whatever degree the future is yet open, To be decided by free agents, it is unsettled. Now, open theists would not say that God is weak or that God is powerless. They wouldn't go that far. They say simply that God is capable of predicting and ordaining certain future events because he is capable of working in a world and bringing certain events to pass when the time is needed. Therefore, God could inspire the Old Testament writers to prophesy certain events and then he could simply ensure that those events occurred at the right time. Furthermore, they also, open theists claim that they do not deny the omniscience of God. Like classical theologians, they state that God is definitely all-knowing, but they differ in that God can only know that which is knowable, and since the future is not knowable because it hasn't happened yet, it cannot be exhaustively known by God. Instead, God only knows the present exhaustively, including inclinations, desires, thoughts, hopes of all the people. See, in open theism, God can make mistakes because he does not know all things that will occur in the future. According to them, God also takes risks and he adapts to the free will choices of the people. And they claim biblical support for their position by citing Scripture wherever God changes his mind, Exodus 32, or where God is surprised in Isaiah 5, or where he tests people to see what they will do in Genesis 22. Open theism tends to portray God, the God of orthodoxy, as distant, 
controlling and unyielding while promoting the God of openness as involved, adapting, loving, interacting, and caring for humanity. I mean, when it comes down to whether you believe God is sovereign or not, the basic issue is simply this. How big is your God, beloved? And how small are we? (laughs) That's the question. How much do we have to do to cast ourselves upon Him for grace and mercy, both in salvation and every moment thereafter? See, your, your theology, when it comes to these kind of things, will have a radical view of your prayer life. It's crucial, not only when it comes to understanding theology, but it also is crucial in how to understand when we endure trials or tribulations that come our way. One writer says this, God does not have a specific divine purpose for each and every occurrence of evil. When a two-month-old contracts a painful, incurable bone cancer that means suffering and death, it is pointless evil. The Holocaust is pointless evil. The rape and dismemberment of a young girl is pointless evil. God does not have a specific purpose in mind for these occurrences. That's what they would hold to. That's what they would believe. He goes on, he says, when an individual inflicts pain on another individual, I do not think that we can go looking for the purpose of God in that event. I know Christians frequently speak about the purpose of God in the midst of a tragedy caused by someone else, but, but this I regard to simply being a pious, confused way of thinking. Sad. When you think back of some of the martyrs that have gone before us, For John Bunyan, William Cowper, David Brainerd, the the loving purpose of God in pain was one of the most precious truths in the Bible and one of the most powerful existences in their lives. Think of John Bunyan, who spent over 12 years in jail for simply preaching the gospel. He said this, Suffering comes not by chance or by the will of man, but by the will and appointment of God. See, whether our trials, beloved, come of the sort of a crisis that we may have, or whether they're just that constant trial and tribulation that we find ourselves in sometimes that have the tendency to just go on and on, pressure of this life, and they kind of wear away at our resistance. Whether it's a crisis or whether that's an ongoing trial in your life. While most of us know that during those times, we should be called to pray and we should be understanding that we should trust God more. I have to ask myself this question, why don't I? When I'm in that situation, why don't I pray as often as I ought to? I'll be real honest with you. Kind of transparent. It's pretty simple. I don't pray as often and as hard as I ought to because I think I'm self-reliant. I think I got the bases covered pretty well. Now, the Bible would call that pride. <laughs> and it touches the heart of each, every one of us in so, to some degree or another. But you know what? My pride makes me think erroneously, but it makes me think that somehow I can just handle things by themselves until they really get bad. <laughs> 
then, you know, then we have to call a prayer meeting. But up until that point, I'll work it out. Eventually, I'll get a little help from God, if need be. But I rely mostly on myself and a little bit on God. I find at times I don't really live or even believe the words of Christ. When he says in John 15, 5, he's speaking to his disciples. He says, without me, you can do nothing. When's the last time you took that verse to the bank? Without me, Christ says, you can do nothing. Not that you can do a little bit. Not that you can do something. You can do nothing. So when God needs to speak to my heart, he brings along trials. And he taps me on the shoulder and says, how self-reliant are you now, pal? I'm still here. I'm still here. Maybe you need to give up your pride and, and, and seek me with your whole heart. And understand the simple fact, without me, you can do nothing. When we come to the story of Jehoshaphat, he's a king of Judah. Remember the... the the kingdom is divided. And he provides us with some helpful instruction on the subject of prayer and trusting God in the face of severe trials. He was basically a pretty good king. The Bible says that he sought to follow the Lord and bring God's people back to him. In verse chapter 19, verses 4 to 11, it tells us that in Second Chronicles. He ruled in the southern kingdom. At the same time, there was a wicked king up north who ruled King Ahab. Did everything dishonoring before the Lord. And even though he was a good king, Jehoshaphat, he had a character flaw. <laughs> he had an issue, like we all do. But his issue was is that he had a tendency to make wrong alliances with the king up north who was not a good guy. He was godless. He actually went into battle with Ahab. And as a result, he almost lost his life. He even arranged for his son to marry Ahab and Jezebel's wicked daughter, Athaliah. And if you know the story later on, she was the one who basically slaughtered off the entire Davidic line except for one infant son named Joash, who was hidden away from her murderous rant. But here we see Jehoshaphat, and he, he formed these ill-fated business alliances even with Ahab's son, Azaziah. And I understand his motive. His motive might have been good. The kingdom is divided. Let's reunite. God doesn't like things divided. We see the same thing going on, unfortunately, even in modern-day churches today. Let's just all get together in a circle and forget about the theology. We'll just hold hands and sing kumbaya. We don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to, you know, kind of speak about theology because that's so diverse. There's so many people that believe different things. Let's just all say we believe in Jesus and let's just be happy in Jesus together. Check the theology at the door. That's very dangerous. God doesn't call us to that kind of unity. Jehoshaphat formed these ill-fated alliances with this wicked king and with his son even. 
And even though his intent was good, the outcome was bad. Well, in verses 1 and 2 of Second Chronicles chapter 20, we see one morning Jehoshaphat was shaken out of his sleep by his intelligent forces, and they came running in with horrifying news. It says, a great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, out of Aram, or better, Edom. And behold, they are Azan Tamar, that is in Gedi. See, this is an enemy, it's in a coalition, about 15 miles south of Jerusalem on the western shore of the Dead Sea. And all of a sudden, Jehoshaphat's life and his entire kingdom, he was the king, his entire kingdom were at stake and basically facing extinction. I mean, if you want to panic, now's a good time to panic, right? I mean, when you're in the face of seeing your life wiped out and everything you've worked for wiped out, you might be okay to panic at that point. Most people would say it's okay to panic at that point. You see people in crises, whether it's an automobile accident or maybe they're in the hospital and they're told some horrible news, and you see panic on their faces. What would you do if you heard some threatening news that affected your entire future and maybe even your life? What would your response be? Well, we look to Jehoshaphat and this godly king, he did exactly the right thing. It says that he called a national prayer meeting and he encouraged the people to trust God in the face of this overwhelming crisis. And you know what? They did it. And he literally, the story tells us, won the war with prayer alone. Without even getting the, 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 the swords out. This lesson today will teach us our great need should drive us to prayer and faith in our great God. We're going to go through this quickly, so hold on. We see here, first of all, their great need in verses 1 through 4. And we should relate that to our great need. And when we have a great need, it should drive us to prayer. I mean, that's kind of obvious to any believer. But just because it's obvious doesn't make it automatic. At least not in my life it doesn't. There's many times that I've been faced with a great need and I'm trying to figure it out. Sometimes hours, sometimes days, sometimes weeks, months. And then finally God says, have you prayed about this? And you stop and you realize, wow, here I am trying to figure this mess out. God, help me. And all of a sudden everything becomes clear. The problem's still there. He doesn't just take the problem away, but he gives you wisdom and he gives you insight. So our great need should drive us to prayer, but it doesn't happen automatically. See, it's easy to read this story and miss what a great thing it was for this king, Jehoshaphat, to call his nation to prayer in the midst of being attacked by their enemies. I mean, nobody would have said, that's a good time to panic, Jehoshaphat. I mean, you got people coming at you from every side. They made an alliance against you and your people. Now's a good time to panic. Nobody would begrudge him that. And when he heard the news of this army within his borders, he could understand, or we could understand if he said, hey, you know what? We need to, we need to get all the generals together, you know, get the troops ready and everything and get them all lined up. We're going to go fight this thing. Oh, yeah, you know what? Okay, let's downward prayer. Lord, bless our efforts. Amen. Okay, let's get them. 
That's kind of what we do. That's what we do. But instead, Jehoshaphat, it says he turned his attention to seek the Lord and to call the nation to prayer and fasting. And that wasn't an automatic thing to do. Just as it was not in the life of Jehoshaphat, it's not in our life either. Just because we're Christians and we believe in an all-powerful God, God is sovereign, he's omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing. When we are faced with a crisis, it doesn't mean that we just automatically go to God. Because if you're like me, a lot of times, that's down the, on the list a little bit. We try to figure things out. I mean, he not only could have reacted with panic, but he also could have felt angry toward God. And the reason I say that, if you look at verse 1 at the very beginning, it says, after this. Well, after what? If you go back, and we're not going to spend time this morning, but if you go back and you read verses 19, or chapter 19, you're going to see that Jehoshaphat began to make things right. He went and spent extreme amount of measure of, of effort and everything to set things right within his kingdom. He made certain reforms that would be honoring to the Lord. He instituted a number of, of different things that would bring that nation back to God. Verses 4 to 11 of chapter 19. And all of a sudden he's facing extinction by these armies coming against him. I mean, it would have been very easy for Jehoshaphat to shake his fist at God and go, Hey, wait a minute, what's the deal? You know, we've been kind of really working at reforming and turning this nation around and doing all the right things in the right way. Why are you bringing this now, God? Tried to bring this nation back to you. I taught them to put away their idols, and they did it. And that they should follow you and you alone, because you're worthy to be trusted, God. I know that. And now we're facing annihilation from a bunch of pagans? What gives? I don't deserve this kind of treatment. I don't know about you, but I felt that way sometimes in my life. I felt certain points in my life I've tried to do everything to follow God in the right way and do the things the right way. And the mess gets worse. <laughs> things get worse. And you're pausing and you're looking at God going, what are you doing? I'm trying to be, you're not making it easy for me here. That's when we begin to complain. You know, God, this isn't fair. I'm trying to follow you, but oh, it's just getting more trouble for my efforts. And I look at my pagan neighbor who's, who's basically godless in every way, and he's the one that got the raise. He's the one that's got a new car, and boy, he's got everything. He's not living for you at all. And here I am trying to, and it seems like things are getting worse. So we end up getting angry at God and feeling sorry for ourselves. But you know what? It's a blessing because Jehoshaphat didn't do that. He didn't do what his flesh would have wanted him to do. He did what was not automatic, what was not just simple intuition on his part. He prayed, it says. Another response he could have had was to trust his army. I mean, he, had, he was a king of a nation. I mean, they had incredible resources. Chapter 17, verses 12 to 19, tells us about the organization and the might of his forces. This wasn't some little piddly army. 
He was equipped for war. He was a king. It would have been easy to think, hey, you know what? This is what we've trained for. This is what we've prepared for. Get the army ready. Call the generals. Let's go get them. But Jehoshaphat, rather than trusting his army, he publicly, look at this, he publicly admits his lack of strength. Now, for a king to do that, that's something. And he calls out on God as his only help in this time of crisis. He put God first. He put prayer first. Now, he did realize that he could do some things after he had prayed, But he realized that he could not do anything worthwhile before he prayed. See, prayer, beloved, is our strongest weapon. And I think sometimes it's our least used weapon. So he resisted the temptation to panic. He resisted the temptation to get angry or even to trust in his army. And he recognized this great need for him and his nation. And so he prayed. might be sitting there going, man, I hope I do that the next time I'm hit with a big crisis. I, I hope that, you know, I do, follow Jehoshaphat's example. I want you to be careful that you so easily commit to that. Because to understand this story, we have to see that Jehoshaphat's call to prayer was very humiliating. It was humiliating for him. And that brings us here, praying in the face of our great need requires humbling ourselves before God and others. We can't come before God with a proud heart. Last week we looked at true humility, seeing ourselves as absolutely destitute. There's no other way. And seeing God as all-sufficient. See, that's the foundation of any true prayer. Jehoshaphat Remember, he was a king. He was the king of Judah. And if you remember back in the ancient East, in their socioeconomic culture in which they lived in, kings were a very proud bunch. They had an image to maintain. Leaders had to be tough. They had to inspire confidence in those who followed them with their leadership skills. I mean, what kind of leader, to be honest with you, admits in front of his people, hey, you know what, I'm really afraid. Because we're helpless. We can't do anything. That's exactly what he did. That's not good politics, but that's exactly what Jehoshaphat did. He admitted his fear. He called for a national prayer meeting. And then he prayed in front of everyone about how weak he was. Verse 12. See, it would have been better politically to pray in private. (laughs) Let's go pray in private. We can have a little prayer meeting and then we'll get up in front of the people and say, hey, we got a little problem. Nothing to worry about, folks. You know, uh, God is on our side. Our troops are mustered. We're ready to go and uh, pray for us while we go out and defend everybody. That would have been the logical thing to do. But you know what? Jehoshaphat was not worried about politics. He wasn't worried about his public image. See, he knew that when he was in deep trouble... If God didn't answer, it was over. And so he openly admits his weakness and he calls upon the Lord. One of the works of John Bunyan entitled An Acceptable Sacrifice 
he mentions these two scriptures, Psalm 51, 17, that says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. And also Psalm 34, 18, where it says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. On those two verses, he comments, and he says this, John Bunyan does. He says, conversion is not the smooth, easygoing process some men seem to think. It is a wounding work. Of course, this breaking of hearts, but without wounding, there is no saving. See, the biblical theme here is that we must humble ourselves before God. And you know what? That runs absolutely counterintuitive to what the current wave of worldly wisdom flooding our churches with teaches. Which basically says, well, no, you've you got to feel good about yourself. You've got to build up your self-esteem. You know, you are somebody. Personally, I think we should be more concerned about whether or not we have God's esteem not self-esteem. In the New International Version, I'm not a big fan, but this one verse, it kind of makes my point. Verse 2 of Isaiah 66, it says in the New International Version, it says, this is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite and trembles, trembles at my word. See, if we're self-sufficient, beloved, if we don't admit that we're needy, what do we do? We rob God of his glory. But when we recognize our great need, then we learn to humble ourselves before God. And we begin to pray. Not just by ourselves, but with other Christians who also bear the burdens with us. Our great need should drive us to prayer. Clearly. That is so important that we need that. And once that need drives us to God in prayer, we need to understand how to pray. And that's what we want to look at. Jehoshaphat's prayer gives us some instruction on prayer. Knowing our great God should direct our prayers. Sometimes I hear Christians pray and it's like, do they even know God? Do they know anything about God? Because what they're asking is kind of counterintuitive to what the scripture teaches. Two things to see here quickly. In our prayers, we should not only seek answers to our problem, but we should seek God himself. So important. And yet we forget it. Verse 3, it says, Jehoshaphat, what did he do? He turned his attention. In other words, what that means literally is he set his face. He determined that this was going to happen to seek the Lord. Sometimes when we're faced with a trial, all we see is a trial. We can't see anything else. So we think about the trial 24-7. We can't sleep at night because, well, the trial's so big. And we forget to say, you know what? When we're faced with these kind of things, when we're caught between a rock and a hard place, we don't just need to go to God and say, hey, uh, you know, can you help me out here? No, we need to go to God and seek him. Seek him. Verse 4 states that the people not only sought help from the Lord, but also it says they sought the Lord. I mean, this was nothing new for Jehoshaphat. In, in chapter 17, a couple pages to the left, verse 4, he's described as the king who sought the God of his father. So seeking God out was 
Something that he did on a regular basis. That Hebrew word for seek means literally to trample underfoot. Maybe you have this around your home. If you have a path, maybe it's to the barbecue across the grass or, or maybe it's to take the garbage out or whatever where you continually walk on your yard in a certain way, in a certain place every day. What happens? You beat a path down. The grass is kind of beaten down and you can see, well, this is the way they walk around the house. That's the idea. To beat a path to God because you frequent that way so often. That's what that word seek means. And in the first four verses of his prayer, in verses 6 to 9, what does he do? He focuses on God himself. Doesn't even talk about the problem. Doesn't even talk about all the enemies. Doesn't talk about that. He focuses on the goodness of God. And then the last three verses, in verses 10 to 12, he gets around to mentioning the problem. But even when he mentions the problem, he realizes that God has to be prominent in this prayer. I was asking myself this week, if I was faced with immediate annihilation, could I honestly say that I would be so God-centered? I mean, I don't know about you, but when I'm in a a tight place, when I'm in a situation that, you know, man, I I need some help, usually my prayer is, God, get me out of here! (laughs) Help me out! Come on! I want relief from my God now. I want it now. I don't want to wait. I don't want to sit and ponder how great my God is. No, I, get me out of this place, this situation. Take care of it, God, whatever it is. But unfortunately, sometimes when we pray that way, we miss something that's so crucial. See, in a crisis, we're not supposed to, brothers and sisters, run to get God off the shelf like he's some little genie. And rub him and, okay, God, here we go. Here's your big chance. Help me out. Get what we want and then we put him back on the shelf. That's not the way it's supposed to work. Till the next crisis comes. See, trials should cause us to seek not only relief from our situation, but to first of all seek God himself because that's what we need. We need him. I mean, do you believe this morning that God is sufficient for our life? That God sufficiently provides for his children? See, this is part of the issue, even within the modern-day church. There's, a, there's a, a problem. People don't understand the sufficiency of Christ. So you have all this psychobabble stuff working its way into the church. When really God himself, his indwelling spirit and his word including our brothers and sisters in Christ, the Christ's body, the church, are sufficient for a believer in, the, in any crisis. But there's people who think that somehow when it gets bad, well, that's when you need, you need, you need to get therapy. You need to go to the world and, and use the techniques of the world and, and, and try to allow them to use their expertise because, I mean, God is, yeah, he's there, but, you know, he can't handle this. I was flabbergasted to find out that even a lot of Christian psychologists say this. God and his word are not sufficient. They're not sufficient. 
That's why we have this profession of psychology because we're the, the, the psychotherapists. We're here to help you. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and great promises so that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. He provides all things for us that pertain to life and godliness. John MacArthur in his book, The Sufficiency of Christ, writes this, Pure Christianity needs no embellishment whatsoever. We find complete sufficiency in Christ and His provision for our needs. But too many Christians, he goes on, have bought into the notion that all the spiritual resources we gain at the moment of salvation are not adequate to meet the real needs in today's complex world. So they look for something more, an emotionally exciting and self-edifying experience not found in God's Word. This failure to understand the sufficiency of Christ has opened the doors to all kinds of worldly influences, causing many modern believers to mix biblical truths with seemingly helpful man-made methods, such as mysticism and psychology. As a result, they wallow in a watered-down pseudo-Christianity that has been drained of its vitality, effectiveness, and security. End quote. See, if we have God and we cling to God then even if we aren't delivered from the crisis that we've gone to God with, you know what? We can go through it. Even though the the loss of children, the loss of possessions, the loss of health. Talk to Job. He went through it. Because... As we said of Abraham last week, the living God is our friend. We can walk through anything. But if we turn to the world for help, who gets the glory? The world. If we turn to God as our only refuge and strength, he gets the glory. Our trials should force us to lay hold of God in brand new ways that we would not have done if we had not been driven to cast ourselves completely before him in prayer. We should come away not just having presented our request to God, but also knowing God better as our refuge and strength. Psalm 46.1 says, in times of trouble. Well, in our prayers, we should also, we should seek God as revealed in his word. This is so important. Seek God as revealed in his word. You know, Jehoshaphat's prayer here in 2 Chronicles 20, it's just filled with scripture. I mean, it is scripture, but it's also filled with scripture. He starts in verse 6, he recites God's attributes. You are the God of our fathers, implying, you know what? You took care of them. Surely you can take care of us. You are the God in heavens, the ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations. Even those who are threatening to wipe us out, God, just to remind you. You are so powerful and mighty, he says, that no one can stand against you. Why is Jehoshaphat telling God all this? Do you think that somehow God forgot? I don't think so. 
God doesn't need that kind of information. It was really a rehearsal in his own mind and in the people's minds about the greatness of the God that they served and the reason why they could trust him and him alone. He not only cites God's attributes, he cites God's actions in verse 7. He says, you drove out the inhabitants of the land before your people Israel, and you gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever. Abraham is called God's friend here in Isaiah 41.8 and James 2.23. He reminds God of his covenant to hear the prayers of his people when they cry to him in their distress. That's right out of a dedication to Solomon's temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 28 to 30. Then Jehoshaphat mentions the problem. And he reminds God, it stems from the very fact that Israel had obeyed him by not wiping out these people, and now they're invading his territory. They're about to drive Israel out. Look at what it says. Not of their possession, but of whose? God's possession. So he calls attention finally to God's ability to deal with this problem in contrast to Israel's inability. See, that's the first step in prayer is realizing that we can't work this out ourselves. And that's a great prayer because it's just saturated, it's steeped in Scripture. It focuses on God as he has revealed himself to us in his word. I mean, if we just fill our prayers with the greatness of our problems, what do we got? Nothing. Does that help your faith grow? I don't think so. But if we fill our prayers with the greatness of our God and how he's worked throughout the centuries and also just in, in the brief time we've been on here on earth. That's why it's neat to keep a journal. You see how God's worked in the past, how he's answered certain prayers. You go back in times of need and you say, you know what? He provided here. He'll provide here. I just know it. That'll help you. It, it, it grows your faith. God delights to answer believing prayers where we put our finger on the promises of God and we point to the truth in his word and we ask him, you know what? Make it so in our case. Some of you may have been praying for loved ones for years. Hold on to the truth that, you know what? God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to faith in Christ. So you pray for that unbelieving relative like you've never prayed before, believing God that he will touch that heart and save that soul. Our great need should drive us to prayer. Knowing our great God should direct our prayers. And the last point here this morning is faith in our great God should follow our prayers. Verses 14 to 30. As people here gathered at the temple in prayer, the Spirit of God came upon a prophet, it says in verse 14 there. And this prophet stood up and he encouraged them not to fear. And he assured them that God is going to undertake for them this battle, and they don't even have to lift a finger. Now, if you know anything about God and, and the Old Testament and battles, that wasn't always the case. Okay, You can read about a lot of battles. My grandson loves the Old Testament. I think for that reason, everybody's always fighting, killing off people, and all that kind of stuff. He's just into that stuff. Likes to see how God works through certain people and, and, and just is, is really into the Old Testament. When they heard this word through the prophet, it says there in verses 18, 19, that everyone fell down and they worshiped and then they stood up and they sang loud praises to God. Now remember, who's the king here? Jehoshaphat. Who called the prayer meeting? Jehoshaphat. 
What do you see here? I see humility in the heart of this king. Think about it. These are his people. He's the king of these people. He called the prayer meeting. Everybody's together, and all of a sudden, some Weisheimer stands up and you know, starts spouting off, oh, I'm going to tell you what. Wait a minute, I'm the king. He didn't do that. See, he understood. No, you know what? God is speaking through this prophet of God. And he was willing to listen. See, if he had been prideful, filled with pride, he would have said, wait a minute, sit down there, pal. This is my meeting, not yours. Go home. <laughs> I'm the king. Just to remember, just to remind you, I'm the one in control here. He didn't do that. He was humbled, and he was willing to submit to God's word through this other man. See, that speaks a lot about ourselves sometimes. Sometimes we're unwilling to to bend. We think that we got everything under control, and you know what? Just butt out. Don't be telling me how to run my show. That took some faith. But look at what he did. Based on the prophet's word of God, he submitted himself to it. He gets the people up the next morning. They march out to the battlefield. And who's leading them? Now remember, they have three armies coming against them. I mean, this is like the point of annihilation, right? Who's leading them? Oh, the choir. (laughs) That makes a lot of sense. You know, I wonder if they're wearing choir robes and all that. I don't know. It's just kind of weird. I mean, if I was going to war, I don't think I'd put the choir on the front lines. Unless they sang really, really bad, then maybe you just, you know, need them to get wiped out. I don't know. Maybe that's what he was thinking. I don't think so. They're singing these praises. That took some faith. To go into battle with your front line consisting of a choir... And all of a sudden, God causes these enemy armies to begin to turn on one another. So that Israel, all they had to do was collect the spoil and celebrate the victory. I mean, this is a story that you couldn't really make up. I mean, this is just an incredible work of of God's sovereign power working. Just incredible. Two things here in closing Faith in God means being obedient to his word. Don't ever forget that. Faith in God means being obedient to his word. See, this promise given through the prophet in in verses 15 to 17 was one thing. The prophet could have stood up, said that, and sat back down. And they said, okay, let's get on with the prayer meeting. That guy's kind of crazy. He wants us to take the choir and go out and sing. You know, they could have done that. Believing and acting on what the prophet said was another. I mean, think about these singers. They were staking their very lives on the truthfulness of what this man of God, this prophet said. Marching unarmed in the front of an army, singing praises to God against a powerful enemy that was no doubt armed significantly. And Jehoshaphat encouraged the people in verse 20. He says, put your trust in the Lord your God and you will, you will be established. Put your trust in his prophets and his word and you will succeed. See, the evidence of their trust is seen in the fact that they kept marching. I mean, you have armies coming against them. And they're just out there singing, marching away. 
No weapons ready, nothing. You know what this is a picture of? It's a picture of our salvation. It really is. In salvation, you know what? We can't do anything. We can't do anything. God does it all. Verse 17 says, stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. That's what salvation is. I mean, even faith, we're told, is a gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. So that we cannot boast. 2 Timothy chapter 2 even speaks of repentance as something that God grants us. He says in verse 22 of 2 Timothy 2, So flee youthful, youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing to do with foolishness, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. And then he says this, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And then look at what it says in verse 25. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth. And that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after which being captured by him to do his will. The only way we're saved is by faith. The only way that that we can activate that faith is through repentance, which is a change of direction, a change of mind. The only way that can happen is if God graciously grants that to us. Sometimes we tell people, well, you need to repent. When maybe we should be praying that God would grant them repentance. Thinking that somehow that's their part. We don't have a part in salvation. God saves us to the uttermost by his grace through faith. With that being said, our faith that lays hold of God's salvation is not just some intellectual assent. It's not just believing God is. It's not just saying, oh yeah, I believe. But you don't act on it. Saving faith is always obedient faith whenever it's talked about in Scripture. Just as those singers went before the nation and demonstrated their faith by marching out into battle armed with only the songs of praise, so genuine faith in Christ as our Lord and Savior, will be demonstrated in a life of joyful obedience to his word. Faith that says, I believe, but does not result in obedience, I'm sorry, it's not saving faith. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 says, And by this we know that we have come to know him. Tell us, John, how? If we what? Keep his commandments. Whosoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a what? Liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That's why we're called Christians. Right? Little Christ. We, we follow the Savior. We walk the way he walked. When you see someone naming the name of Christ and their life is in shambles and dishonoring to God, that's cause for pause. That's where Scripture says, you know what? You might want to be sure you're in the faith. Make sure that you're one of those overcomers. Make sure that you're persevering in the faith. It's not good enough to raise your hand in a service or walk down an aisle or say some silly sinner's prayer that we don't even find in Scripture and then affirm those people say, well, now you're a Christian. Let's see what happens in their life. Let's see some obedience. Let's see some action to their words of faith. 
Because God always rewards those who put their faith in him. It never fails. Those who trust and obey his word, he always rewards them. Now, I'm not saying that he gets you out of the fix that you're in. I'm not saying that he takes all the problems away. I mean, think of some of the martyrs. They went to their their graves trusting God, living obediently. And they got their heads severed from their bodies. There are many who have trusted God and, and lost their lives. But you know what? This earthly life is not the final chapter, beloved. All who suffer loss for Jesus will be richly, the scripture says, rewarded in heaven. Or God is a liar. And so we always want to be spiritually enriched through our trials. And if we recognize our great need, we need to pray to our great God and we need to trust in him and in him alone, not in the arm of flesh. Hudson Taylor was a great missionary in inland China. And he went through just horrendous trials and difficult circumstances. He lost his wife and at least one child in death. His own life was often in danger. He used to say this, it doesn't really matter how great the pressure is, it only matters where the pressure lies. See that it never comes between you and the Lord. Then the greater the pressure, the more it presses you to his breast. Isn't that incredible? Corey Tenboom, the author of The Hiding Place, survived all the horrible German concentration camps. People used to walk up to her and say, wow. You have such an incredible faith. What a great faith you have. And she'd say, no, it's not my faith. It's what a great God I have. See, we should be willing to join Jehoshaphat and reject all these self-confident, self-esteem garbage that's coming in into the church and say, you know what, God, we're powerless and we don't know what to do. But our eyes are on you. We're seeking you with our whole heart. Our great need should drive us to prayer and faith in our great God. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we pray that we would be reminded of this great truth. Lord, I know that personally speaking, my own prayer life isn't what it should be. But Lord, you've definitely spoken to my heart. And Lord, we need to be more reliant on you and less reliant on ourselves. Father, let's start believing God to touch those uh, lost family members. Let's start believing God as a church to touch this community that you would begin to grant repentance even to our neighbors. Lord, that they would show a divine interest in our fellowship here on Sundays. Lord, we pray even for the the radio ministry each week as it goes out over the airways across the Bay Area. We don't know who's listening to that, but Lord, you do. And Lord, you're perfectly able to take that word of truth that's spoken through your your word and Lord, to, to magnify it in the ears of those who will come to you. And Father, we pray for our Sunday school. We pray for the, 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 the classical conversation school that will be starting in the fall. Lord, we, we pray for um, our missionaries. Father, we, we know that all these things have to come under your sovereign rule. But Lord, you tell us to, to pray, to come and to intervene and to ask you to work in ways that only you can. And so, Father, I pray that you would broaden our impact upon this community, that many would come to know the Savior. Lord, we pray for the evangelism team that goes out even this afternoon. Lord, that you would grant them wisdom and insight and a passion for the lost. 
Lord, what a wonderful opportunity to spend time together learning about evangelism and then go out and, and actually put your, your, your feet to action and be used of God to communicate the glorious gospel of Christ with those who he may bring across your path. Father, we pray for them. We, we ask that you would just grant them your favor. And Lord, that we would see fruit as a result of that. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for a full service today. And Lord, we thank you for all that we've seen and heard. Pray for anyone here this morning who may have yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ. Lord, we know that salvation is a work of you. But Father, we, we still are called to believe in the gospel, in your son, in the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. And so, Father, we pray that you would grant them that belief, that you would help them even in their unbelief. Lord, that you would uh, uh, call them to be your own. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.